This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One new book from Verso that might be of interest is Futures of Black Radicalism, edited by Gay Teresa Johnson and Alex Lubin. Black rebellion has returned. Dramatic protests have risen up in scores of cities and campuses. There is renewed engagement with the history of black radical movements and thought. Here, key intellectuals, inspired by the new movements and by the seminal work of the scholar Cedric J. Robinson, recall the powerful tradition of black radicalism while defining new directions for the activists and thinkers it inspires. This book makes clear that new black radical politics is thoroughly internationalist and redraws the links between black resistance and anti-capitalism. Futures of Black Radicalism features the key voices in this new intellectual wave, including Greg Burris, Jordan T. Camp, Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and many more. Futures of Black Radicalism, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Newspapers may be in an unprecedented crisis, but they still know how to sell a good old-fashioned panic over sex or drugs. Recently, the New Orleans Times-Picayune published a splashy, multi-part investigation into sex trafficking on Bourbon Street, attempting to do just that. The paper has described its reporting as exposing, quote, unfettered sex trafficking at adult venues along the legendarily boozy and licentious tourist trap. But what the lengthy investigation actually did was sloppily conflate the problem of people being forced to have sex with other people for money with another issue entirely, which is people selling sex consensually or even just stripping. My guest today, Melissa Jira Grant, recently published a brutal and incisive deconstruction of this series at the Fair Punishment Project's news site, Injustice Today. Grant, who I've wanted to have on the show for quite a while, is a contributing writer for Pacific Standard and The Village Voice, and a writer-in-residence with the Fair Punishment Project, where, full disclosure, I'm also a fellow. Her latest book is Playing the Horror, The Work of Sex Work, Before we get this going, I want to thank our supporters on Patreon.com and encourage you to join their hallowed ranks, if you haven't already. We have more than 600 supporters now and are aiming to get 100 more signed up this month. If you haven't done so, go to Patreon.com slash The Dig and make a contribution. We don't paywall a thing on this show, so we depend on your utterly voluntary support for independent left-wing media to keep it financially sustainable. If you've been meaning to do so and haven't already, it'll only take a minute. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thanks. And also, people are always emailing me and like, sorry to bug you, but here's an idea for the show. Listen, I am always looking for ideas for shows. So if you see an article or book whose author I should interview or know of an interesting activist or politician, shoot me an email. 
And if you're the author of a book that you think would be a good fit for the show, please ask your publisher to mail me a copy. Okay, thanks. Here's the show. Melissa Jira Grant, welcome to The Dig. Hey, thanks for having me. So this Times-Picayune multi-part hot mess, you write that it, quote, referred interchangeably to stripping, selling sex, and trafficking, and concluded, vaguely and without data to support it, that victim advocates in law enforcement told them that French Quarter strip clubs were a trafficking opportunity. First, what is a trafficking opportunity? And second, more generally, what is this article trying to do by confusing so many different things that are only really related in that they involve the exchange of something sex-related for money? I still don't understand what a trafficking opportunity is. So I am going to extend the benefit of the doubt to the Times-Picayune and I believe what they mean by trafficking opportunity is a place where trafficking could or is likely to happen. Um, however, any business where there is a high degree of exploitation already present, where workers don't have a lot of access to justice and recourse and aren't organized, but in any kind of criminalized or underground workplace or work that people do, um, there is a, a possibility for trafficking. That could also be described as a trafficking opportunity. Um, thinking of New Orleans specifically, you know, think of the fishing industry, think of the buildings trades. And one of the biggest trafficking cases in the US where people who were trafficked actually got some restitution involved teachers, right? But I don't think that the Times Picayune or any other media outlet would describe a school as a trafficking opportunity in the same way that a strip club in this piece is described as a trafficking opportunity. Um, and so you're right, like they are, they are blending all of these different things that might have a, a link to commercial sex. I think that they're using the presence of commercial sex to say this is a trafficking opportunity out of hand without really getting into what that means. And that allows this piece of journalism, frankly, like a lot of pieces of journalism, that purport to be about trafficking, to miss trafficking entirely and to get narrowly wrapped up in the business of commercial sex. There is somebody in this piece that is interviewed who is trafficked, but there is one person and it's about 12,000 words long. And that one person's story takes up about 250 words of the piece. So not only do they, you know, not find trafficking themselves, these reporters who go into the strip clubs over the course of a year, but they did find somebody who they say was trafficked, but we don't learn very much about them or how their trafficking situation connected to the strip clubs, if it originated there, um, if it was made worse by the strip clubs. It's, it is a mess. And I think it does a real disservice to people who have been trafficked. And it also does a disservice to the public who rely on the press to inform them about what trafficking is. This is um, you know, an area of public policy that 
public policymakers are actually looking to the press for guidance on as well. Um, and that's the reason that I think it's important at all to, to write about a story like this is it has already inspired uh, action at the level of the mayor and the city council to look into the strip clubs based purely on these vague allegations in this story. Even though the reporter who wrote the series or the lead reporter, I guess, wrote that, quote, there has been no evidence that clubs knowingly employed dancers who were victims of human trafficking. That's right. Um, yeah, it's really it's really remarkable. It, it, it seems like what the the series did, which, as I was telling you earlier, I um, did the uh, painful due diligence of, of reading through to prepare to speak with you, is that it just like highlights acts that readers might think are depraved or immoral, like stripping, and then juxtaposes them with things like a tangentially or really, you know, barely, mostly unrelated accounts of brutal pimps that have nothing to do with those those strip clubs. And mostly it focuses on people selling sex in strip club private rooms. And reading through that piece in your critique, the the thing is, I doubt that this reporter or any reporter who does this sort of thing is is really putting out this sort of misinformation because out of some sort of cynical motivation. I think it's more that people's thinking about sex and sex work is so twisted and it's such its twistedness is so foundational to their thinking that it's just this unexamined starting point that leads them to make unsupported assertions that to them might seem entirely reasonable, like, oh, people are having sex in these strip club private rooms and there's a pimp that used to hang out in Bourbon Street who did these horrible things. And thus, it makes sense altogether somehow. It's, all, it's also hard for me to speculate about how this story happened. I'm on one level, when I hear multi-part investigative year-long series, that raises the level of expectation. That raises my expectation. <laughs> the level of reporting. Uh, you know, I I find investigative reporting both incredibly difficult and incredibly rewarding. So to think that a group of journalists had the resources to do this for a year and that this is what they came back with um, is troubling. And and so that you know, it's through that lens that I'm trying to understand what how how this happened. And you know, it's impossible to to know exactly when I when I tried to ask some questions of the reporter involved. Um, I got what can only be described as a brush off um, from his editor. And so I, you know, this is just me reading the piece as you did trying to figure out what happened. My analysis is that this, this war on human trafficking or efforts to combat human trafficking in the United States has been with us now basically since the end of the Clinton administration, right? So we're, we're approaching almost the 20 year mark of seeing lawmakers, reporters, advocates, law enforcement saying this statement. We don't know enough about trafficking. People aren't talking enough about trafficking, but here we are to tell you the truth. For 20 years, um, that's been the frame. And I, I find it, you know, just it's not true that we're not talking about this. There's so much reporting on this. It's not great. Um, there's so many new laws that have been passed to combat trafficking in the past 20 or so years. Those aren't getting the same level of 
inquiry and investigation. There's a lot of law enforcement action around human trafficking. But again, that wasn't the subject of this story. And, and so that's where my attention is. And I think that because of that narrative, like we don't talk about this enough, this must be revealed. Um, that makes anything sort of seem newsworthy. And it also plays into, as you said, sort of these these older sort of biases or baggage maybe that people are bringing to a story like this um, around sex work. But I think what it is, is for the past 20 years or so, most of the public discourse on human trafficking has been narrowly focused on the sex industry. Some people would describe that as sort of conflating sex work and trafficking. And I think that's somewhat accurate. But I think what's really going on is that conflation has been successful. We are now living in an era where those two things have been made so synonymous that I'm like, if I were sitting down from across from the editor of this series, um, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't understand that those were distinct things. And so that that's also, you know, when, when we're talking about the criminal justice system um, and we're talking about what is regarded as a very severe crime, like human trafficking, um, we have a responsibility to get it right. And, and so that, that's my interest in this. You know, I don't, I don't think the Times-Picayune here is particularly um, egregious in this kind of reporting. Like, you know, this sort of style of reporting of like, we went deep inside the strip clubs to show you the truth. We went deep inside the industry to get to the raw truth of it. I mean, you can find that in the pages of the New York Times. You can find that, you know, on Frontline. Um, you can find it in reputable, quote unquote, places. So it's, I think what it is, is this is the paradigm now, right? This is, these things are, are treated as indistinct. It, um, yeah, it, it very well is, may not be exceptional, but it is having a nefarious local impact on the policy front. And I want to ask you about that later. But first, can you zoom out a little and tell me about this 20 year odd history of the anti-trafficking movement, how it came about? what sort of impact it's had, what sort of interests are aligned behind it, and what sort of effect that's had on the debate over over sex work? So this this particular iteration of the, you know, efforts to combat trafficking in the United States um, comes out of the late 90s. It comes out of efforts to find an issue that would bring together conservatives and liberals in government. Um, one of sort of the architects of, of human. I love bipartisanship. Brought yeah, us the Iraq, the Iraq war, together. financial yeah. deregulation, NAFTA. Everything. It's wonderful. And, and so the, the architect behind this, Michael Horowitz, um, who had some success, I would say, in, in Congress, getting them to take action on what he described as religious freedom um, in the late 90s to you know, define uh, attacks on people's practice of religion as like a new priority for Washington, and that it was the the responsibility of the American government to ensure globally that people had the right to practice their religion. What he really meant by that is Christians are under attack and we need to protect Christians. And what this effort did was mobilize a group of, of Christian voters, activists across the spectrum um, who may not have been that engaged in politics, but this seemed like a noble thing. And also, it, you know, he got that kind of bipartisan coalition around that. So Michael Horowitz is saying to himself, OK, I've done this. Now what can I do with this coalition? Human trafficking is where they go next. They basically take the same policy language and framework of this Religious Freedom Act 
and again, kind of position the United States as the global cop on trafficking. That is our responsibility to assess different countries' performance in combating trafficking. So it creates an office inside the Department of State, uh, the Trafficking Persons Office. It creates a special ambassador position to head that office. And every year that office is tasked with grading countries around the world on how seriously they're combating trafficking. Uh, one of the other stranger things in the, the beginnings of the war on trafficking is that uh, George W. Bush in 2002 um, in the midst of signing a bunch of um, uh, special orders on uh, various war on terror related activities, takes a break from that and, and wedged within those, he signs a, a national security directive on trafficking. And it defines prostitution as linked to trafficking. It defines the fight on trafficking as essentially also a fight on prostitution. Um, and it also defines trafficking as a national security issue. So that's how we got here. <laughs> um, we didn't get here because a group of human rights activists who wanted to uh, improve working conditions in industries where workers are frequently exploited and don't have access to justice um, could organize and fight exploitative conditions that can lead to trafficking. It didn't originate with service providers uh, who were getting experience, you know, hearing about people in their community who had been trafficked, trying to figure out how to help them. Um, it really originated out of think tanks and it originated out of this desire to sort of set the United States up as a world cop on this and to bring together, you know, people across the political spectrum on this. And so you'll have people make cases for fighting trafficking um, you know, through a feminist lens, through a sort of evangelical social justice lens, through a carceral lens. Um, the carceral lens is really what unites them because what this movement has accomplished largely over the last 20 years, I don't think we can say they've accomplished a reduction in trafficking because we don't actually know how much trafficking there was or is. There are no reliable numbers on this. Um, but what they have succeeded in doing is expanding the reach of the criminal justice system in the United States. They have succeeded in getting very long sentences for people accused of trafficking. Um, you know, I say accused of trafficking because in these, you know, these are cases where judgments have been passed, but the activities that have been defined as trafficking are activities that in the past would have been charged differently. They may have been charged as promoting prostitution or pimping or pandering. And so this has really elevated um, the consequences for these activities, even though I don't think the activities have changed all that much. So it's, you know, if you if that's what's going on sort of big picture, you can see how you would get reporting like this, right? That would sort of blur the lines between all of these things and take it as a fundamental good that like the way to fight these things is to like put more people in prison. Um, but you'll notice that in, in all of that, people who've actually been trafficked, their needs are not at the center of that equation at all, right? It kind of reminds me of the way that the, the violence against women movement went, um, where that movement very quickly invested in the criminal justice system as the solution. And, and we see the, the ill effects of that today. You know, there is still widespread gender-based violence in this country and locking people up who are abusers doesn't necessarily seem to change that. Um, but that's the solution that is often the first solution offered. And trafficking, um, because traffickers have been sort of cast as like, you know, members of organized crime or very dangerous people, uh, you know, even too dangerous for reporters to talk to, uh, which I find just unbelievable. Um, you know, this is 
it, it's like a different degree of monstering. Um, and sometimes, you know, I'm not saying these are great people, that that kind of critique um, and even punishment is necessarily unwarranted. Um, what I'm saying is it has been taken for granted that these are universally terrible people who universally deserve really stiff punishment. And those things, you could think that those things are true, um, but that doesn't necessarily line up with the experiences of people who are trafficked. It doesn't necessarily give them justice or improve their lives. Nothing like the carceral state to bring people together. Uh, yes. Before before we move on, for listeners who haven't thought or read a lot about this before, can you lay out the status quo of sex work in the United States and its many manifestations from the most consensual, freely chosen remunerative job on one end to the two people in highly exploitative, unfree situations on on the other? Like, what's the actual picture compared to what the picture that conflates everything under trafficking? I mean, the, the actual picture is a lot of commercial sex in this country is criminalized. So it's really hard to say definitively, kind of, here's how many people are involved in commercial sex, here are their working conditions, and here is what they need. Um, but when people have come forward and said, this is what I do, and this is what it's like, and this is what I need, um, what we mostly hear in the United States is the main harm that they are facing is the harms of criminalization. Um, and that doesn't just include, you know, people engaged in kinds of commercial sex work that is explicitly criminalized, like styling sex. Um, but that extends to places like the strip clubs as well, where increasingly law enforcement are tasked with intervening there. You know, in the past, maybe it would have been, a, you know, uh, liquor violations, right, that would, would bring law enforcement to their door. But now it's investigating trafficking that's bringing law enforcement to the doors of these work, these legal workplaces. Um, I think it's more useful to sort of think of the spectrum of, of sex work in the United States through the kinds of workplaces that exist. Um, in, in prostitution and in, in selling sex directly, um, there aren't really workplaces anymore. A lot of this is really done ad hoc where people are working either out of hotels or apartments, places that they live or may not live. Um, there really isn't much of a street trade anymore in the United States. There are people who are soliciting on the street, um, but even there, you know, activity is mostly happening behind closed doors. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, policing has been very severe uh, and gentrification in hand in hand with policing has really made the kinds of places where you would find um, people selling sex uh, inhospitable for people to do that and dangerous for people to do that. Um, so it's you have that end of the spectrum and then you have things like the strip clubs where because of that kind of policing, um, there are people who are selling sex now in strip clubs, which violates, you know, the law on multiple levels, but they're doing it because they don't have other places to do it. And, and so there, and there's different responses to that. You know, some people in the, who work in strip clubs really wish that activity wasn't happening there. Then there are people who understand why it is and, you know, are trying to kind of find a way to accommodate it. There are other people who feel like this is just too dangerous to have happening under our roof, um, and doesn't belong here. Um, then add on top of that, okay, so if what you're doing is criminalized and you don't have a real great workplace to do it and you can't do it in an above board way, 
think of all of the ways that that can open somebody up for labor exploitation and think of all of the ways that that can make people who are engaged in that work a target for people who want to harm them, uh, whether that's the police, whether that's customers, whether that's their intimate partners who can hold this over their head as a form of leverage. Um, this is all of the, the, all of the ways that we have used the criminal law to try to attack commercial sex, um, or at least to suppress it, has uniformly backfired uh, in creating more danger for people engaged in the sex industry. Yeah, I think that's an extremely important point. The image of the violent and exploitative pimp, which is the stated enemy number one of the anti-sex work law and order advocates, to the extent that those people exist, and, 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 they, and they do, while they're the reported enemy of the criminal justice system, in effect, they are a product of it because women are forced to work in the the shadows rather than in a situation where where they don't have to worry about the the police and and prosecutors. Yeah, so I think this that's a good way to put it. Is like this system has produced the need to have these third party figures, whether that's somebody who might describe themselves as a manager, or someone who might describe themselves as a pimp, somebody who might describe themselves as a boss, like whatever you want to call that person who's engaged in organizing a sex worker's work and also taking a cut of their earnings. Um, that person is, they gain from a criminalized system, right? If you are going to crack down, for example, as we're seeing now with, in New York, um, there's a lot of crackdown activity focused on massage parlors, mostly in Queens, uh, mostly staffed by uh, immigrant women from Southeast Asia. And, you know, these are workplaces that exist because there's no legal way to sell sex. So you have these fronts. Um, you know, operating as a massage business that are engaged in in commercial sex. And they're easy targets um, because these are people who work there because they might not legally be able to work in other workplaces, right? They, if they're not legal to work in the United States, then, you know, working in the underground economy becomes a, necess a necessity for them. Um, and that opens the door for exploitation. Um, more and more, I think we have to think about the ways that other kinds of criminalization impact um, the dangers that sex workers face, whether that's immigration enforcement, whether that's drug enforcement. Um, these are really escalating the dangers that sex workers are facing. And I think, you know, as we're having this sort of like larger conversation about criminal justice reform and, you know, bipartisan criminal justice reform, um, sex work is often absent from that conversation. I think what's going on is, you know, as we're sort of as a country becoming more literate and more critical of policing and what police, what harm policing can do in communities, I think there's also a desire to sort of carve out what the good policing is and anti-trafficking policing, you know, sometimes falls into that narrative. You'll, you'll have people who, you know, consider themselves opposed to, you know, mass incarceration, opposed to racial profiling, but do believe it's acceptable for police to go save women who are trafficked. Um, and so I, I actually fear that we're going to see more enforcement in this area, um, perhaps as an unintended consequence or a fallout from this larger conversation about criminal justice reform. And that's because this has been sort of isolated or siloed from that conversation. So 
you know, one of the things I'm trying to do in my reporting is to bring all of that together. Um, people's lives aren't segmented in this way where it's like, oh, I'm dealing with the police now because I'm a sex worker. I'm dealing with the police now because I'm undocumented. I'm dealing with the police now because I work in a strip club that, you know, is violating the law and the police are in my workplace. You're still dealing with the police. And, and so I think to the extent that that sex work has sort of been isolated from that larger conversation on criminal justice reform, sex workers have suffered. You mentioned the recent crackdowns in Queens on massage parlors. There has also been a lot of law enforcement activity against web-based platforms for advertising sex work. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what sort of impact that's had on sex workers? There's there's actually some news developing this week um, where one of the, the longest standing online platforms for escort advertisements, the Eros Guide, um, one of their call centers was raided this past week by Homeland Security investigations and materials were seized, including you know digital materials, hard drives, paper files. It's unclear where that's going and the warrant um, for that search is still sealed in federal court. So what I believe is going on there is what has been going on over the last few years, which is more federal enforcement against these online platforms, whether that's Eros Guide, whether that's uh, Rent Boy, which was similarly raided, um, but also with arrests of their staff two years ago uh, in a federal case that ended up putting the, the owner behind bars. He's, I think, currently serving in federal prison right now and shut the site down. Um, the charges were not pimping, the charges were not pandering, the charges were not trafficking. Um, it ended up being a, mostly about the money and money laundering. Um, but again, if you can't legally sell an advertisement um, to a sex worker, which is actually kind of an open question, um, you know, the advertisement isn't breaking the law. Um, but, you know, what is going on now, this enforcement paradigm is trying to, to create a net around all of these online providers. So Eros Guide, Rent Boy, Craigslist, Backpage, to say that they have a role in promoting prostitution or even promoting trafficking by being places where people post these ads. And, you know, it's, this it's is, like the equivalent of being a landlord of a house of ill repute or something like that, the digital equivalent. Right. Right. And, you know, I, I think it's, again, it's something that is very rarely contested. You know, there's, you know, a lot of, when you look at, for example, the, the special hearing that happened in the Senate um, right after the inauguration or right before um, into Backpage, you know, you have John McCain and Kamala Harris sitting there saying the same things. You have a lot of, of support behind this idea, uncritical support behind this idea that the way to protect people from exploitation and violence is to go after these websites. Um, but that actually doesn't make much of an impact on the lives of people who have been exploited to go after a website. I don't think it, it produces any kind of preventative effect because it's not the presence of the website that's creating an opportunity for exploitation. It's that this is a criminalized underground activity and people who you know, are already vulnerable are going to be vulnerable to exploitation, whether or not the website is around. Um, and it's, I think what's going on here, if I had to offer an opinion, is that these are easy targets. Um, 
they're, you know, have a salacious reputation. They, you know, don't enjoy a lot of public support. Who is going to stand up and say, we need to protect the rights of Backpage? Um, and the people who are most harmed by this are sex workers, and they don't have a lot of political voice. So, you know, it's it's an easy target, and it doesn't actually address the root issue of, of exploitation or vulnerability to exploitation. And how are sex workers affected when these sites are shut down? Do they just go somewhere else, or are they forced to be in more dangerous places to sell sex? The first wave of crackdowns were on websites like Craigslist and Backpage that were actually like really cheap advertising. You know, Craigslist for a time didn't cost any money to place an ad on, and Backpage, you know, was pretty low cost. So for people whose business model, you know, relied on low cost advertising, when they lost that, their options were either go somewhere else that cost more money or, you know, advertise in other ways that don't include the Internet. And that could include working out of a strip club or working on the street or working out of a parlor. Um, So it's changing people's working conditions. And that, you know was not part of the public debate in the Senate on this at all. I do know from watching this this speech that uh, Senator Claire McCaskill gave um, as all of these crackdowns were going on, that she actually got letters from sex workers saying that, you know, this crackdown has forced me out of work or it's taken food out of my children's mouths. But, you know, I think that's often sort of seen as acceptable collateral damage um, to some nobler fight. And I I don't understand how that's acceptable. but their needs are very often the needs of sex workers, particularly sex workers who need these low cost sites um, are just totally absent in these debates. The pretext of the criminalization of sex work that we've been discussing is the fight against trafficking. The premise, though, whether stated or unstated, is this moralistic argument, I think, which is that people should not sell sex for money. My question is, what is the ideal legal paradigm? And given people's deep-seated moral hostility, often extremely hypocritical, deep-seated moral hostility, given what we just learned about Roy Moore uh, in the last few hours, (laughs) um, what is that ideal legal paradigm and how do we get there given people's opposition to sex work, even if it's like entirely disingenuous and covering up layers of twisted, repressed feelings that these people have? I have such a hard time with sort of the repression argument. You know, maybe this is me like digging deep in some sort of, you know, decades back well of Foucault or something. But it's just like, I think people (laughs) love talking about sex work. They love talking about sex trafficking. Like, I don't think that these are taboo subjects or subjects that, um, you know, aren't talked about enough. There's like so much discourse on all of these things um, because it's fascinating and it's much easier to sort of have an abstract debate than to sort of look at the material um, lives, the the consequences of these debates and the material effects they have on, on people. Um, You know, there's, there's a place that, you know, I guess standing up against sex trafficking can occupy uh, for the public, that's you know, it, it just seems like morally indisputable. Like who would who would stand up for sex trafficking, right? So I don't think it takes like a lot of, uh, like when you're thinking of hypocrisy, it's just sort of like okay, well then what's sort of the other the other side of that? Um, you know, I mean the hypocrisy for me in this is you say you're here to protect women, but the impact of many of the things you're promoting um, are harming women. 
So what is this about? I, so I think of sometimes as abortion is an interesting parallel to this, right? We know that the right wing has not been successful at outlawing abortion outright, but they're trying very hard to make it almost impossible to actually get one. And whether that's, you know, crackdowns on the places where people have an abortion, whether that's people's access to information about abortion. So like these crisis pregnancy centers that, you know, offer, you know, fake news essentially about what abortion is, try to deter people from having one. Um, you know, we know, we know that that creates dangers for people who are seeking an abortion and, and that, you know, you can have whatever individual moral relationship to abortion that you have, but when the law is exercised in this way against people who might already be vulnerable, people who, you know, as women, as, you know, gender nonconforming people who could be pregnant as anybody who could be pregnant, you know, this is we know what these laws are about, right? They're about controlling people and, and they're about creating a system of oppression that's based on gender and sexuality. And I look at anti-prostitution laws the same way. Um, you know, there's another parallel you could make, I guess, to the war on drugs, um, where I think there's been a, a lot of movement towards understanding that criminalization doesn't actually impact people's behavior, but what it can do is it can make people's behaviors have much higher costs for them. Um, and so People who, you know, might never, you know, want their children to use heroin, for example, are now going to go to the drugstore and put naloxone in their medicine cabinet, right? Like there's, there's a certain sense right now of like we, it's, it's foolish to expose people to avoidable danger. It's foolish to, on the one hand, say that, you know, we should be locking up everybody who is using drugs and on the other hand, denying them access to things that could actually um, keep them safe. So it's, I, I think that that sort of plays into the, the way that the criminal law and people's imagination of what the criminal law is plays out around sex work. Like there's still sort of this operational fantasy of like, well, if something, something should be illegal because that's a way for us to communicate our moral opposition to it. Um, but you know, criminalizing drugs, criminalizing abortion, um, however much that may have been intended to communicate a moral position against abortion, against drugs, the moral position I think it's actually communicating is we don't value the lives of those people. And, and I think that's the fundamental thing around sex work as well. I think it goes beyond sexuality. I think it's, if you do this thing, you are disposable. And we, what happens to you is what happened to you. You had it coming. We don't have a responsibility to you anymore. Uh, and that's a, that's a very dangerous place to go politically, socially, to say that there are you know, categories of people that are disposable and we're going to use the law to ensure your disposability. But that's what I see happening. Yeah, I think that's right. It's, it's less about repression and maybe more about now that we're into this Freudian territory uh, sublimation, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what's the ideal legal paradigm? I mean, the ideal legal paradigm, if you ask sex workers, is ending the criminalization of sex work. And that can mean a lot of different things, depending where you are. Um, you know, selling sex is illegal basically everywhere in the United States, with the exception of a couple of counties in rural Nevada. And it's only legal in certain um, constrained environments. So doing it in a licensed brothel, following their rules. You need to actually have legal workplaces for people. To, to sell sex if they're going to be safe. You can't Which have means, a system. 
legalization and not merely decriminalization? Well, no, I mean, you have to, I think decriminalization and legalization need to be separated out here. I think the the phrase that I tend to use more is, is ending the criminalization of. And I think if you're going to then, if you're going to say, okay, it's, you know, it's no longer criminal to sell sex, um, then workplaces need to also be removed from the criminal context. So, you know, laws that prohibit brothel keeping, laws that prohibit keeping a body house, laws that prohibit, um, you know, renting facilities for those activities. Those laws are also making it impossible for people to practice, to to engage in selling sex without criminal being criminalized. Um, And so we have to talk about just not just like activity, but also place. Um, And, and that is something that's really challenging, because that does take us into that place of like, well, what does that look like? What is their licensing involved? Is that, you know, who gets to decide uh, where these businesses are and who can run them? Um, And that, that is something that I really defer to, to the workers on. You know, um, and I, that to me is sort of where this conversation has to begin. Um, there is almost no room for sex workers in public policy debate in the United States. It's different in different countries. Um, in New Zealand, where sex work is fully decriminalized, sex workers were actually brought into that process, uh, including the evaluation process of the, the law reform and continue to be regarded as important to that process. Um, in India, there's a massive sex workers union. I, I forget in what part of the country. The the DMSC, um, I think they're in southern India, and yeah, they you know they engage in not just policy reform but also creating a credit union because banks were discriminating against sex workers. They also collaborate on um, you know safety in the workplace, whether you know not just like sexual health but also. Um, you know, broader kinds of occupational health, clean water, um, making sure that people who are working in the brothels are there of their own volition and aren't forced. So that that to me is sort of like, it, it's so it's so easy to get caught up in like, well, what's the perfect way? And my answer tends to be ask sex workers, um, but also understand that the criminalization that we have right now is going to make it very hard to do that. And so figure out how to bridge that divide, figure out how to, to have a, a reform conversation that actually is going to serve the people that the reform is supposed to be about. Seems like ending criminalization is the necessary, important first step that will allow for the more complicated discussion of what a legal regime looks like, and there'll be different opinions about it, and it might be difficult to figure out exactly the right way to do it. But if we get to the point where we're actually having that concrete discussion of what the system should look the legal system should look like will be in a much better place than we are at present. Yeah, and it also has to include the police. I mean, this is something we're seeing, you know, just to use New York again as an example since it's where I am. You know, we can have a mayor who's committed to ending stop and frisk. We can have a prosecutor like Cy Vance who says he's committed to ending uh, marijuana prosecutions. But if police continue to engage in that activity, if police continue to criminalize people for that conduct, um, then what reform has actually happened? And so I think that's one of the biggest barriers to to reform around around sex work and criminalization 
is I, I do worry that police would turn around and just find other ways to pick people up, you know, whether that's disorderly conduct or public lewdness or all of these other kind of, you know, or crimes of disorder um, that aren't actually, you know, harming anybody, but that police rely on to sweep people into the system. So I, I, it's like a much broader conversation. And, and I, I think that where I've actually seen movement in the last few years in the U.S. anyway, on sort of broadening the conversation about sex work and law reform is coming from the LGBT movement. You know, is coming from groups like Lambda Legal and Transgender Law Center who support the decriminalization of sex work. The ACLU has certainly gotten more engaged in this, not uniformly, but, you know, there is there's more movement there um, to think about how the criminal law around sex work endangers people, including their clients, which, you know, crosses into many different communities. And, you know, trans women in particular face extreme danger because of the criminalization of sex work. And that watching those kind of those two conversations coalesce um i think it's a it's a way to imagine like okay so as we as we think about different ways we want police to respond to violence in the lgbt community um you know how do we how could that be like a model for thinking around sex work how do when we think about ending the criminalization of queer youth of color um how does that also provide lessons around sex work because often these things are going together. They're not, they're not, um, separate activities. Police in New York regard many trans women of color simply for existing to be sex workers. So it's, it's a conversation I think that can't be like isolated to any one community or movement. Before I let you go, I want to return to the media criticism question. What role has the, the media played in instigating and legitimating the criminalization of sex work. And for any journalists listening, what sort of stories about the sex industry should they be writing? I'll, I'll take part two first, and I'll say, please start reporting more on the policing of sex work. Um, I don't think that we need any more lifestyle stories about what's going on on the streets. That kind of journalism has been with us for decades. You know, whether that's somebody like Gail Shee writing in New York Magazine in the early 70s in kind of the new journalism mode, like people don't need the realities of the sex industry exposed to them, particularly with the internet. Uh, Their library is full of that information. Yeah, I feel like that's really been played out. But what, what, what there hasn't been sufficient journalism, and this is where I focus my work because of this, is on on law enforcement, whether that's police, whether that's prosecutors, whether that's lawmakers, and the impacts of their actions and accountability for their actions, and how that impacts not just on the lives of sex workers, but also the broader community. Um, and to regard sex workers not as some isolated group that has no connection to the broader community. Sex workers are immigrants, sex workers are mothers, sex workers are trans, sex workers are black, sex workers uh, are, have disabilities. Like there, there is, this is an intersectional issue at its core. And so I think coming at it just as like, let's talk about these people and the work that they do misses a lot. Often the media at large is only interested in sex work when a sex worker is killed or when a famous person's life, particularly a political, a man in politics crosses into the life of a sex worker. And, and I think we've actually moved a little, um, beyond that. But um, I think that, you know, part of maybe the poor reporting on sex work also has something to do with um, other things that are damaging journalism in this country, whether that's, you know, the loss of alt-weeklies, where I feel like alt-weeklies are a place where this kind of accountability reporting lived and could happen. The reporting I did on sex work at the Village Voice up until until recently with all of the changes there 
um, you know, those are the kinds of stories that um, really are so suited for that kind of audience and to be told <laughs> in that kind of way. Um, so there's kind of a, there's kind of a beautiful conflict of interest there. I worked at the Philadelphia City Paper, now sadly defunct for many years, and my some portion of my modest salary was no doubt paid by the many advertisements for company human company offered in the back pages of the newspaper. This is the thing. When I was at The Voice, they had gotten out of that business entirely. In fact, part of the reason I actually hadn't pitched sex work stories to The Voice um, until then was because I wondered, you know, would that cast a shadow on them? And, you know, you could argue that it does and it doesn't. Um, but it is interesting that I wonder if Alt Weeklies held their fire a little bit on reporting on Backpage and and crackdowns on the sex industry because of that advertiser relationship. Um, and that that's something that, you know, now is almost a moot point because that that business model is, you know, there, there aren't those. Yeah, those ads are not in the paper anymore. Um, so that that's part of it. And I also wonder if sort of like uh, just weaknesses in reporting on the criminal justice system. Right. Where like where where sex work stories tend to cross into the daily paper is just in the form of arrests, names, ages, mugshots. Um, all of these mugshot websites too, um, you know, that kind of like aggregate news, news producing, I almost called it newsism. It's not really journalism. It's like the police handed us this piece of paper and we reprinted it, you know, um, if that's sort of where sex work is coming into your, your coverage, then that's, you're, you're already creating a system where you're basically believing what the police are telling you, um, and not, not doing any follow-up on that. So that's that's a dangerous thing. And a lot of local reporting, even even in recent years, when there's been a, an explosion of really good investigative work on cr- the criminal justice system and mass incarceration, there's still this framework in place, this longstanding framework of looking at a problem or a perceived problem or a mixture of real and perceived problems and the implicitly accepted assumption being that more law enforcement, more criminalization will help solve that. That's what I saw in the Times-Picayune piece. Yeah, that the police actually only exist in that piece um, as just a presumed solution, with one exception. There's a moment where they're quoting from uh, one of the groups that does the alcohol enforcement, the strip clubs. Their agents went into a club to do some undercover enforcement, and they saw a uniformed New Orleans Police Department sergeant flirting with and touching dancers, and the club workers told them that that sergeant was a regular. And the context for that was those investigators, you know, were being offered sex in a VIP room, and they said they weren't comfortable doing that in the presence of the sergeant. And the club staff said, "Oh, don't worry about it; he's here all the time." Uh, not in an enforcement capacity, but in a customer capacity. Uh, and I, I just couldn't believe that, that that didn't merit a little more attention, saying, like, well, wait a minute, if this is how law enforcement is engaging with the strip clubs, how does that impact, you know, this this proposed solution that they're going to go in and, you know, rescue people? Uh, you know, that's not law enforcement's job uh, to enforce um you know, safe workplace standards. There are other avenues if you're what you're really concerned about is, is labor exploitation than calling the cops. Uh, but you're right, that, that rush to the cops is that's ingrained in many ways. Yeah, and the, and the the piece sort of beats up on police and other parts of the the I guess state and local government for not not investigating strip clubs enough, not supervising enough, not 
fining or shutting them down enough. That's sort of the upshot. Right. Without sort of saying, well, well, then what would happen? You know, why is this? Yeah. And that that kind of presumed frame of just like the police are here to help us. Um, You know, I do think that that's moved a lot, though, in the in the last few years. I think that there is more. Um, I'm thinking of a, a, a panel that at IRE a couple of years back about Ferguson and some of the, the reporters who were there, you know, from the Washington Post and the LA Times were saying that, you know, when they were on the ground in Ferguson talking to community activists about their interactions with law enforcement, they told them stories that they could barely believe, um, but they wrote them down. And then we're just like, how do we run with this, right? Fast forward a few months and the, ju- the Department of Justice report comes out on, on Ferguson. And one of the reporters who was there said, you know, we already had that information. It was in our notebooks. But we just we weren't thinking that um, that that information was credible on its own. And so I, I, I wonder if, if we are going to see sort of another generation of criminal justice reporting out of that moment that is going to be more adversarial to the police than it has in the past, or at least more critical. What's the upshot been in? New Orleans, your piece said that city council is taking action in response to to the investigation, the so-called investigation. Well, so far we have uh, the city council pledging to have public hearings on the strip clubs and considering um, passing a city ordinance that would essentially say that any strip club that was, uh, you know, had any kind of violations, if it was closed, that it couldn't open again for six months and that also strip clubs will be limited, um, to like one per block. These are small blocks in the French quarter. Um, but you know, the idea I think behind the the city council moves is to eliminate strip clubs through attrition. Um, you know, you're grandfathered in to that, uh, that limit on one per block unless you get shut down. And so you can imagine a scenario where there's like an increased enforcement clubs get shut down. They lose that being grandfathered in and then, you know, face the choice in six months when they reopen of reopening there or having to reopen elsewhere. And they may not have that choice. So that's one thing um, that's still kind of TBD. Um, I don't know when those hearings are taking place, um, but that's that's what the city council has thrown in around. And the mayor, uh, Mitch Landrew, has already obtained the services of uh, an attorney who comes, you know, right out of the Christian right with a track record of you know, not only opposing LGBT rights and his role at a Christian law firm, but also in his own practice, um, pushing adult businesses, legal adult businesses out of town, um, they've retained his services to do an assessment of the strip clubs and strip club law. So that- Mayor Landrow, friend of women. Yeah, that was just days after the story came out. I mean, this was like pretty immediate action. And, you know, I feel for this. I mean, journalism is trying to make, you know, a real impact in the world. But I think that as you were saying around, you know, this kind of like investigative enterprise series that produces policy change. I mean, right. Like, doesn't that sound like the kind of thing you'd like want to get an award for? Um, you might even say that there's a certain model where you have some reporters spend a year on this investigation and then you have the editorial board write a bunch of things pointing to the investigation, shocking findings and demanding public change and then submitting it all to the Pulitzer board. It might almost be that that's how the setup works, but yeah. And, and without considering, um, did you get the story and is what you're arguing (laughs) for actually going to help the community? Um, one thing that, that I'm, I'm looking at, uh, now is sort of the relationship also of, of nonprofit organizations to, 
to how policy is made. So there, you know, has been a campaign for the last two years in Louisiana on the state level to ban 18, 19 and 20 year olds from dancing and strip clubs. And, and the movement behind that has come from some nonprofit organizations that receive uh, federal funding to do anti-trafficking work. So that's, I think, another piece of this is like you have the press, you have the local government, but then you also have these federally funded anti-trafficking projects that, you know, now it's incumbent on them to go out and find trafficking. And so there's been this this consensus that has developed that the strip clubs are going to be the place to do that. Um and you know, all that I hope to do is is to hit the pause button on that process for a moment, um, so that people in the community can can ask these kinds of questions themselves. Melissa Jerry Grant, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Melissa Jira Grant is a contributing writer for Pacific Standard and The Village Voice, and a writer in residence with the Fair Punishment Project. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once overshared, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week, usually two. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music, including new music you might have noticed, by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our Postmaster General is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, leave us a nice review. Please also tell your friends and family and anyone else you might happen across in your day-to-day digital or real life about the show. We greatly appreciate all propaganda made on our behalf. And last but not least, if you haven't already, take a moment, go to patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. We can only do this show with your support.